Matthew Carnegie, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of the Touchpoints podcast by East Point Bible Church. This week's episode is actually the second in a three-part mini-series on baptism. So if you missed last week's episode, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that first one since these are all connected and build on one another. Last time, we began by looking at what baptism is, both the term as well as what the church ordinance itself consists of. So this week, we're going to look at the meaning of baptism to help understand why we do it, as well as refine our practice of it. As I've said before, this isn't really the format to explore every angle of something so important to the church, but I will try to address many of the most significant and common questions and controversies along the way. Now, as we covered last week, the word baptism simply means immersion, and the church practice of baptism involves immersing someone in water. But why? Why does God want his people to do something so unusual? Well, this comes back to another truth we covered last week. God uses rituals throughout Scripture to teach us truths in deeper ways than words alone often can. So the ordinance of baptism is meant to teach certain truths about who we are in Christ, yet it also functions as a powerful testimony. Our goal today, then, is to unpack those two sides to the meaning of baptism, both the symbolic meaning of the ritual itself as well as the witness of our faith that it provides. On the symbolic side, at its core, baptism in water as an act of faith is meant to be a symbol of the spiritual reality of our baptism into Christ upon salvation. But that has many layers of meaning. There are at least three main ways our baptism into water portrays our baptism into Christ, though they're all related, and we see them at least hinted at, if not explicitly, in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. First, we see that our baptism by water pictures our baptism by association and identification with Christ. We are those who have been immersed in Christ Jesus as the Israelites were baptized into Moses, like Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 10.2. So we are now identified with Christ. Things that he has done are now credited to us as if we had done them, because when God looks at us, he sees Christ. Our immersion in water portrays immersion in Christ. Secondly, as the passage goes on to explain, by being baptized into Christ, we are baptized into his death and new life. Romans 6 as a chapter is bringing this up to point out that by thus participating in his death and new life, we are now dead to sin, no longer controlled by it, and instead participate in his new life, hence walking in newness of life. We are now able to live lives for God instead of being slaves to sin anymore, as the chapter goes on to explain. Going under that water, yet rising back out, portrays both aspects, that we have died to our old selves controlled by sin, but are raised as new selves controlled by Christ. Finally, there is an even more concrete aspect to our participation in Christ's death and new life that we look forward to. Unless we are raptured first, we still have physical death coming. But by being in Christ, who also experienced physical death, we can also look forward to resurrection as he did. 
We go under the water to portray that physical death that almost all of us will have to endure. Yet we don't stay down there and drown as if that was the end. We rise up out of that water to show our hope that we will one day rise again like our Savior. That death isn't the end of our story, but rather that we have glory to come. This is further explained in Colossians 3, 3 and 4. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Just as Christ was hidden first in the earth and now in heaven, yet was raised from the earth and will one day return in glory, we too have that same hope by being hidden in him to be revealed in glory as we show by being hidden in water and coming back out. This raises an important sidebar about baptism that's worth addressing because it's one of its more controversial aspects. How exactly should people be baptized? There aren't a ton of regulations to the practice, but since it's meant to portray and teach about spiritual realities, then however we perform it, we should make sure it's consistent with the message it's supposed to send. Many different churches practice many different kinds of baptism, whether sprinkling or spraying or pouring, etc., etc. And if you look at their theology of baptism, often you see something about being spiritually cleansed by the act itself in some way, which we saw last week is not consistent with the Bible's description of salvation, but it would lend itself to more of a cleaning action. You can see through that their theology of baptism and the way they practice baptism. So they at least get points for being consistent, if unfortunately not entirely biblical. Now, to be fair, being cleansed from sin is an important aspect of salvation that is certainly also pictured by baptism. And if one is trying to portray that without believing that water baptism accomplishes that cleansing, that's fine. But I would argue those other modes of baptism don't portray the other important facets of our salvation that are highlighted in the scriptures we just looked at, plus others that also attest to those realities. So based on the meaning of the word itself, the layers of theology we've already seen from God's word, and the only clear examples from scripture in the Gospels and the book of Acts that make it obvious how people were baptized, I would argue that baptism by immersion in water is the only acceptable way to practice this ordinance. For example, we don't have a little Christ poured on us. We are immersed in him. We don't just have some of Christ's death sprinkled on us to give us new life. We are immersed in that death to sin, so we are raised completely to new life. We don't participate in a spritzing of death before being raised again. We are immersed in the death of Christ to be immersed in the resurrection life he won. Even looking at baptism from the cleansing angle, we don't need a quick wash from sin. We need to be immersed, totally bathed, to cleanse us from the complete defilement of sin we come from. We can and should show lots of grace and compassion about how many different aspects of Christianity are practiced when Scripture is silent or at least doesn't give details. But baptism is one area where God's Word does indicate how to practice it and reveals all kinds of theological truth it's supposed to teach that's going to be obscured, if not lost, when we do not follow His pattern. We should always be kind, but this is one area where we should also be stubborn because, as Leviticus 10 and Numbers 20 make clear, God is not pleased when we worship Him in ways that contradict the patterns He has set. God's not being a stickler. 
We're not representing our God faithfully when we do not follow the patterns he has set, even if we don't fully understand the meanings behind them yet. Why do all these pictures matter so much? Well, in this case, it's because God intends this ordinance to be a powerful testimony in two important ways. First, it's a way of picturing the saving work of Christ, as we've already seen. By deepening our understanding of what Jesus did for us and how we participate in it, we're strengthening our own faith and the faith of the Christians who witness our water baptisms. We can never plumb the depths of what he did and accomplished on our behalf, but every time we witness such baptisms, we should be deepening our understanding of Christ's work if we are prayerfully watching and meditating on what takes place. Also, this testimony serves as a powerful gospel witness to any unbelievers who are watching too. Maybe the words of the gospel haven't penetrated their hearts, but maybe the picture of Christ's work will instead. At the very least, it captures enough theology that it should stir evangelistic conversations with an unbelieving friend or family member wanting to know why we practice it. Just explaining the meaning of the ritual could very easily be an entire gospel presentation in itself. The other way this ordinance serves as a testimony is much more personal. By participating in water baptism, we are making a public declaration of our faith in Christ. It is, in a sense, declaring our allegiance to Christ in an unmistakable way, by not just using words, but by taking a tangible action to show that we are renouncing our allegiance to the world and following Christ instead. Plus, by joining Christ, we are also joining his body, the church, something a public ceremony like this helps strengthen and solidify. A helpful way to understand this is to look at how some of the early church fathers viewed baptism. Many of them talked about baptism as the point of salvation, but while some of them probably sadly believed water baptism actually brought about some facet of salvation, many of them spoke that way because for them, that was the moment they could point to as an outward sign to confirm the changes God had brought about internally. You see, in the early church, new converts faced great risk of ostracization, if not death. So when people expressed the desire to place their faith in Christ, they were led through a fairly extensive catechism process to explain just what the faith was they were getting into. And if they were still ready to commit to that by the end, knowing what they were agreeing to and the risks involved, they were then baptized to officially join the church, if you will. When the church fathers wrote about it, it was as if they were saying, we can't tell what goes on inside people's hearts to know exactly when their faith is real and saves them, but if they make it to baptism, we can be as sure as humanly possible that they must be genuine believers. Again, baptism doesn't create internal spiritual realities of salvation, but it does serve as an outward confirmation when taught and practiced biblically. This is why the Apostle Peter commands the crowds, asking what to do after his first sermon in Acts 2.38, to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. The Greek, Greek preposition used there doesn't mean for as in in order to get, but rather for as in because or on account of, similarly to how it's used in Matthew 12.41. He's saying the appropriate response to the forgiveness of our sins includes being baptized as a sign of that change and a public declaration that it is permanent, a part of who we are from now on. So hopefully by now you can appreciate the many layers to this practice Christ gave the church, why it's so important to do, and how our theology should inform how we do it. 
Yet this leads us to one last highly controversial aspect of baptism. When should someone get baptized? This is a hot-button issue that can be deeply divisive, so we're going to finish our mini-series next week by devoting our last episode mostly to this topic. Until then, have a great week in the grace and peace of Jesus Christ. Thank you.